The man, Jesus Christ, is not the Lord God Almighty. Whoa. That's a shocking statement. It is found in the writings of Ellen White. And critics of Ellen White certainly capitalize upon this statement. There you see is the evidence. They claim. Ellen White diminishes the deity of Christ. She does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty. And yet, the Bible proclaims Christ as God, very God. Here is Ellen White once again opposed to the Bible. There's no way any Adventist apologist can explain this statement. It is so clear she is speaking against the deity of Christ. I heard on one, one YouTube channel a a uh, critic of, of Adventist Nellon White discussing this with another visitor on the channel, another pastor who was, who was taking his perspective on this. And he said, clearly, Ellen White denies Christ. She is going to hell. Ellen White is going to hell. Well, in some ways, I can't blame him uh, because that's how he understood this statement. She was defying the deity of Christ. Is that really what's going on here? We need to look at this statement in context, and I would suggest it is saying something quite different than what the critics claim it says. Welcome to the Ellen White Podcast. Here is your host, Dr. Judd Lake. Welcome once again to the Ellen White Podcast. I am recording this on December 26, 2023, the day after Christmas. And this statement I'm going to discuss with you is actually about the incarnation, the context of the statement, the immediate context in its paragraph. It is discussing the mystery of the incarnation. So this is an appropriate Christmas theme. What I want to do today, and this is a somewhat of a forecast of what I want to do this next year as we enter into 2024 and I engage with the various episodes on this podcast, I want to focus on this year in general, interpretation, principles of interpreting Ellen White. We are in a day when this particular period in history, here in America, for example, that that negativity, doubt, skepticism reigns everywhere. It is in a context of a very negative environment right now in America. With this next year, 2024, it'll be a, a political election year of our next president of the United States. And I mean, the negativity is just, it literally is in the air. And that has spread to many other areas. And I've observed a more intensification of negativity about Ellen White. In the last couple of years, and even more recently, uh, new podcasts, new YouTube channels uh, are launched. Uh, several are really becoming outspoken. Uh, of course, this is in the wake of, of Steve Daly's book, uh, his psychobiography of Ellen White, where he claims that she's one of the greatest, I should say, not one of, but the greatest fraud in history. Uh, so you've got a lot of negativity out there about Ellen White. And so I think what we need to do is focus on interpretation. 
And everyone needs to read Ellen White for yourself. You cannot take someone else's interpretation, whether it be a critic or a supporter of Ellen White, such as myself. Every one of us need to read it for ourselves if you have anything invested in Ellen White. If you don't care, well, that's another story. But if you care in any way to really know about Ellen White and what she said, whether you're skeptical of Ellen White or whether you're a real supporter of Ellen White, you have enough interest in, invested that you want to really know what she said, then we need to, to discuss principles of interpretation. And so that's what I want to do with you. And I'm going to use this controversial statement. A man, Jesus Christ, is not the Lord God Almighty as a case study in interpretation. You notice the critics, and in this episode so far, I've only stated that one sentence, the man Jesus Christ is not the Lord God Almighty. Does it not have a context? Indeed, it does. It is in the context of an entire document. And I want to look at that with you here in a moment. But first, I, I would like to reflect with you a little bit here. I mentioned this in my last episode that I would reflect a little bit on a very interesting and I think significant meeting that took place back in October 22, day of the great disappointment in Adventist history, uh, when a group of Adventist scholars got together and discussed Ellen White. This was released as a news released in uh, Spectrum magazine, and uh, a number of scholars came together. Most of them are older scholars, retired scholars, uh, spent their their lives in academia and discussing and studying and writing about, about Ellen White. And uh, th there are different perspectives there. I think some of them would agree with my approach to Ellen White and, and others would not. But what is interesting, they all believe that Ellen White is an important figure that we as a church need to listen to. And I think that is what makes this meeting significant. No one from the White estate was represented here at the meetings, but still there. there the, the conclusions are very interesting um, and I think noteworthy. So I just wanted to reflect just ever so briefly on it. Uh, about 20, uh, 27th Adventist scholars spent the weekend of October 22 discussing historically responsible ways to reposition the influence of Ellen G. White in the denomination she helped found. Now, what is interesting, that there's a motto that they have here. The working conference proceeded under the motto this, quote, misuse does not take away proper use, end quote. I like that motto. That is the motto I operate under in this podcast and in this particular episode especially. Misuse does not take away proper use. Within Adventism, our history, and presently, we have so much misuse of Ellen White. And many of those who were once among us were frustrated with this experience and a negative view of Ellen White, and they left the denomination, and they've turned against it now. And many the, the major critics of Seventh-day Adventism, this is no surprise, uh, no new great news, it's been this way for, for years, they are former Adventists. And they experienced a misuse of Ellen White based on the testimonies uh, of that they've written out that I've read, a misuse of Ellen White that happened here. And I find as I listen to their critiques of Ellen White, their, their criticisms of, of Ellen White, I still find a misuse there. That's my view, of course. 
but misuse does not take away proper use. And that is the key. That is a contextual type of statement. You, you, to, to properly use the writings of Ella White, you've got to study them in their context. It's the same way with the Bible. You've got to take a verse in its context. There's an old saying that, that uh, theology students learn a text without a context is a pretext with regard to the Bible. And that is certainly a, a very good motto. And in this case with Ellen White, misuse does not take away proper use. In other words, just because people twist Ellen White, whether inside the church or outside of the church and abuse her and make her out to be something that she's not, that doesn't mean they're, that when she's read in a proper way with proper principles of, of, of contextual analysis, that there is a very positive message. And that, I think, is the consensus of this, this group, uh, the participants here. Uh, they, they in, in their statement, uh, and they, I've only have uh, the news release, so I don't have all the original document that I could reflect on, but just some quotes here. Uh, for example, everything, they say, everything we have learned about her humanity, her historical context, her literary sources, and her spiritual development to create a better understanding of her ministry. Uh, so that's what they say is a comprehensive view that we as a church need to take. And I, uh, that particular aspect, I would ag agree with that. Uh, the plagiarism charge is still alive and well, uh, and it needs to be understood in the context of what legitimate, legal, literary borrowing is. And, and what all of that involved and how Ellen White used her sources, there's been lots of study with regard to that over the years. And I am going to address the plagiarism charge and the issue of literary borrowing in, in some episodes in this podcast next year. I think that that's important to address and with some new ways this, this, the plagiarism charge has been framed. I want to address that, uh, but that's down the road a bit. They end up concluding with, with an interesting statement, and you've got luminaries such as George Knight, Denis Fortin, and and others on there that are well-known Ellen White scholars. Again, most of them, they're retired now, but they've come together, and I think this was, uh, their, their consensus is something that any supporter of Ellen White could resonate with. They conclude with this, just as it is impossible to explain American democracy without Lincoln or to understand the Reformation without Luther, we affirm that the Advent movement will weaken its witness about the Sabbath, righteousness by faith, or the blessed hope if we ignore Ellen White and God's leading in our founding. Well, that is a statement I personally can certainly resonate with. Um, without question, Ellen White is foundational to Adventism. In the 25, 26 years, I should say, that I've taught Adventist history, Adventist heritage, um, I always explain to the students that an unfolding of Ellen White's life really is an unfolding of, of the history, early history of Seventh-day Adventism. The two go hand in hand. So without question, her voice is one that we need to hear. Now, some in that group probably would not agree with um, how I would interpret hearing that voice. I, I believe that we should listen to her as a prophetic voice, and some might say more as a devotional voice. Um, either way, you know, I don't mind the differences here. The fact that there is a consensus that Ellen White has made a significant contribution to this church, and we should listen to her. 
I resonate with that. That's actually refreshing in the context of so much negativity about Ellen White. And, and that's a part of what originated this meeting. They, they believe that there's a crisis, that, that we're putting Ellen White to the side. She's, been, she's receiving a lot of heat and bashing from critics, and she's being ignored within the context of the church, and then she's being abused with some uh, legalistic interpretations in the church. And we need to listen to Ellen White afresh. We need to really hear her voice and I resonate with that, whether it's devotionally or prophetically. Both are needed. Both are needed. Uh, but I personally believe that she has a prophetic message that is, is so relevant. This, of course, is the, the rub, to use a, a term of Abraham Lincoln, a rub with regard to the critics is that uh, the nature of Ellen White's inspiration. And that's something that I think I will address as well in this upcoming year. Issues that will help any listeners to this podcast on how to better understand Ellen White and to read Ellen White and to appreciate Ellen White. So that's my mission really for this next year. And I'm going to start with this controversial statement, the man, Jesus Christ, is not the Lord God Almighty. And this, of course, is in the framework of a larger issue, and that's the Trinity, the triune God. This is a controversial issue within Adventism, and not only within Adventism, it is a controversial issue in, in the larger Christian church, evangelical churches, evangelical theologians. The Trinity over the last several years has become a hot topic of discussion and debate, and I am going to address more issues with regard to the triune God, the Trinity, as well in some future podcasts. So that's a background to this, and let me just start out by saying myself, as a Seventh-day Adventist professor, theologian, I earnestly believe in the triune nature of God. There is a history of anti-Trinitarianism and Adventism, and that's going to be addressed. In fact, Matthew Lucio, the head of this uh, the, the, the umbrella that I'm under, the Adventist History Podcast, uh, Michael Campbell, Greg Howell, the others, we, we have addressed some issues, uh, charges against Adventism and Ellen White in the past, and uh, we plan to do that again with some of the more recent charges. And one of the issues we've discussed is, is the Trinity. So I am actually going to speak uh, in that venue with those guys about this and, and all of our collective uh, insights and, and understandings of this issue. And also, I'm going to be speaking in another venue as well, addressing some things that have been leveled against me particularly. Uh, you know, I, I uh, and by the way, that, that venue will be the Adventist Defense League. I have been wrestling. Let me just take a little trail here off my major focus here off the statement for a moment. I have been really wrestling as I've been listening to recent charges. My name has been called several times on a particular uh, YouTube channel. And, you know, I, my wife and I have been discussing it how involved do I want to get into this? I have done Adventist apologetics, Ellen White apologetics, particularly in the past. My book, Ellen White Under Fire, uh, my book, A Nation in God's Hands. I finished a series recently, of course, on Ellen White and the Civil War, and that was not so much an apologetic work as it was more, I mean, it dealt with that somewhat, but it was mainly just Ellen White's contribution to Civil War literature as, as an original source during that time. That was the major focus of the book. But the, the, the book prior to that, published in 2010, Ellen White Under Fire, I've, I've done a lot uh, with, with that book since then. 
uh, and it's pretty much been ignored by critics, but it's starting to come back in, into focus now. And this makes it interesting. But my point is, how involved am I going to get? I've, I've kind of been there and done that. And I, I am, have no fear of addressing charges against Ellen White. I mean, I read them all. I listen to them all. But the issue is time. The issue is time. And I, I feel that there's not anything I've seen that could not be addressed. But it takes a lot of time if you want to do this well and proper and right. And I'll be honest with you, presently, I have a number of writing projects I'm engaged in right now. Uh, I'm teaching full-time. I plan to retire in the not-too-distant future, mainly so I can write and research full-time. That's really why I want to retire. I, I love teaching, and I love my students, but I feel the Lord calling me to full-time writing and research. And that's what pretty much retirement will be for me, and my dear wife uh, is very supportive of that. But we've discussed where do I focus my time? And you may not care about this, but I'm just letting you know because it's relevant to this, this podcast. Uh, do I engage with criticisms, the more recent criticisms, the, the uh, new way that criticisms against Ella White are, are being presented now? Uh, th that would take me full time. I mean, I could, I could do that, but, it, but to do it right, it would take tons of time and to do that and only that. But I have about three other books projects that I'm working on now and have several other research writing projects on the side on top of teaching right now. So I've been really wrestling with this with the Lord, what he wants me to do. And hey, I'm not the only one. Believe me, there, there are young apologists coming up on the scene that want to address these things, young scholars coming on the scene, that Adventist scholars that will will address this in the years ahead. So uh, for that reason, I don't feel as burdened to do it as well. So I'm going to do it in a limited way. I'm going to establish my own rules of engagement, which are, I'm going to go on a couple of other venues and address some of these issues. And I'm going to, on this, this podcast, I'm going to keep it more positive. I don't want to just get into defense and apologetics. I said that at the beginning, some have already spoken negatively about this podcast, that part of it is defensive. And, but then again, when you listen to the charges out there, you, you really want to get involved and, and defend Ellen White. But I, I am going to, like I, today, I'm going to try to do it in a more positive way. I'm going to avoid on this podcast using names of other individuals, uh, other critics, and so forth, other than the well-known ones. I mean, Steve Davey, that's become pretty quite well-known now, and I mean nothing against him personally. I'm only interested in, in the arguments. Uh, that's a big mistake Adventists have made in the past is, is uh, dealing with defending the faith and so forth is, is going, using the ad hominem. And critics often do that with us and because we've done it with them. And, and that's just not a good way, good approach to take. And I, I do not want to go down that path at all. So I'm only interested in the arguments. Same with Canwright, DM Canwright. Uh, there are a lot of unfortunate misunderstandings about Canwright and myths that we have perpetuated over the years, and that's not been good for us at all. Uh, I, I have significant issues with Canwright's arguments, uh, but who he is as a person and as, as a historic person and, and his whole life, that's, that's something that should be dealt with very fairly and objectively. Um, so I'm not interested in going after individuals or anything like that. So I'm going to avoid as far as possible using names and just address issues 
address charges like a number of critics have used this one that I'm discussing today. So that's the approach I'm going to take. And I want to deal with some charges like the, some of the racism charges against Ellen White. I'm going to address those, but I'm going to do it in a way, or at least attempt to do it in a way that brings out the positive, uh, that brings out a positive nurturing lesson from it. And this statement, the man Jesus Christ is not the Lord God Almighty, as controversial as that sounds, there's really a beautiful message, uplifting message about Christ when you read that statement in its literary context. So anyway, back on track now with all that being said, and I am, I've, some of my past episodes have been more scripted. I'm, I'm just decided I'm not going to be scripted anymore and I'm going to be free. I've gotten used to the podcast microphone. I'm very comfortable in front of my classes, in front of audiences. And this last year, this, this microphone has been a bit of a challenge for me for some reason. Uh, but I'm, I'm starting to feel more comfortable and uh, I'm going to just let loose and put, pull all my thoughts together on some of these issues and this particular one right now. So let's get underway. All right. I want to illustrate for you. A number of people ask, how do we research Ellen White? And let me tell you, this statement, how do you find it? First thing, okay, where is that statement found and what is its context? Well, you can go, this is the place to go. Online, all of Ellen White's previously unpublished writings and letters, as well as everything published, is here. Nothing is hidden. Sometimes critics of the past have said, ah, they're hiding Ellen White's problems and problematic statements and letters in the dark vault in the White estate. That's a a long uh, uh, ago, if you will, charge that everybody knows pretty much now everything is accessible on the internet. And so the White Estate has everything. Unpublished letters are now published on the White Estate. You can do full comprehensive research, whether you are a scholar or whether you are a simple Christian seeking to understand what Ellen White says on a particular topic. But here's the thing with the uh, search, Ellen White search engine. You, you've got to make sure that when you get these hits, you read the statements in their context. Don't just take a sentence or two, read the surrounding paragraphs, and best, read the entire document. So here is the site. Many of you probably know this already, but let's just get back to the basics, okay? So here's the site to get the statement you can go to. You can, of course, use hard, co use hard copies, but this one you probably would only be able to access online. So here we are. Here's the website e from the White Estate, egwhitewritings.org, egwwritings.org. Just type that in, and if you have a computer before you while you're listening, I encourage you to pull this statement up. If you're listening to this while you're driving or doing something later on, pull this statement up because I want you to decide for yourself based on my interpretation. You can't take what the critic says or what I say. You've got to read it for yourself. If we're going to listen to Ellen White and appreciate Ellen White and hear her in her original voice, not through the filter of the critics and not even through the filter of her apologist or or her supporters, but just herself. That means you've got to come to the writing. So go to egwhitewritings.org and at the top, the search. And I, I, I'm not going to get into all the details of searching. I will just a little bit here for those who are not aware, but you'll see the little search icon at the top there, the blank. Now, here's how you could find this statement. Two ways. You could, first of all, and this is the most common way, 
type in a phrase, type in quotes, not the Lord God Almighty. All right, just type that in quotes, not the Lord God Almighty. Hit it, and you will find to the right of your screen the results, three hits, three results. You find, number one, first, the major document is the one we're going to analyze. Then you find a compilation. Lift him up, or one of the devotionals, I should say, which is like a compilation. Lift him up, and that's where I've heard critics most often state this, uh, make this the charge and use this statement. Um, and then it's also in volume five of the older Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary. So this statement, and it, what's published is just this paragraph, the man Jesus Christ is not the Lord God Almighty. So it's not something that we've hit. It's been published already for years. But the entire document has not been released until just last several years on the web here, on, the, on the, this site. So what you can do is you'll go up and you see kind of like a upside down hourglass. And if you click, click on that, I'm using the double screen here, okay. If you click on that, you, you have some options. All collections, which is where it's at. Lifetime works, 1845 to 1917. Compilations, 1918 to the present. If you want to eliminate the compilations, then you go to lifetime works. That 1845 to 1917, that is only the works of Ellen White that were published during her lifetime. Not all the compilations and and devotions and things like that where you have duplicates of statements. That can be very frustrating for researchers and when you're trying to do a search. So always click there. And you know what? In this case, it eliminates the uh, lift him up and the ACDA Bible commentary. You only have the one original source, and that is manuscript um, 140, 1903. The title is The Fall of Our First Parents, Harrellsburg, California, September 27, 1903. And that year will become important. That is in 1903. I'm going to look at the larger framework of this statement. Uh, but if you want to go back, and uh, you can go back to E.G. White Collections or all collections, and you'll see all three of them. You can find it in the compilation. And it'll say at the bottom, portions of this manuscript are published in by B.C., Volume five of the commentary with the pages and lift him up. And then this, and then also in man, volume six of manuscript, manuscript releases, page 102. Uh, you can find it there as well. But I suggest studying it in the original complete manuscript. That's manuscript 140, 1903. So it contains 61 paragraphs. The widest state makes it helpful to research here. They number the paragraphs. It's not, not all the page numbers are given here, but it's numbered in paragraphs. And so I'm going to approach it that way. So this, this statement, the man Jesus Christ is not the Lord God Almighty, is in a 60-paragraph statement, a complete document. And so what we, we find here in this statement is she basically, it's the fall of our first parents, the first 16 paragraphs, she describes the cosmic conflict, the great controversy, describes Lucifer's rebellion in heaven um, and brings it down to Christ coming to this world. The subtitle is A Divine Sin Bearer. Now, I'm going to come back to that. I just want to go to the immediate paragraph here. 
And I want to read that to you. I've only read that one sentence or that one part of a sentence, and that's how it's often quoted. Other critics, they do, they do give the whole paragraph. But I want to read that paragraph to you, make a few comments. Then I'm going to step back from the trees and look at the forest. The larger framework of Ellen White's writings, a few key statements about the divinity of Christ as a framework for understanding this statement. Then I'll zero in and we'll look at it in detail. So this is going to be longer than my previous podcast because I'm going to get into some considerable detail. So maybe you might want to listen to this one in increments or you have time all at once, but I want to dive into this. So here is the paragraph. It's paragraph 28. Here's how it begins. There is no one who can explain the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. So you see, it's about the incarnation of Christ. And that's what Christmas, the old saying, the reason for the season is Jesus, his incarnation. That's the true reality of, of Christmas. She goes on. Yet we know that he came to this earth and lived as a man among men. Here comes the statement. The man Jesus Christ was not the Lord God Almighty, comma, yet Christ and the Father are one. It's interesting how critics gloss over that and don't really analyze it. They just focus on the first part. But again, the sentence is the man, uh, Christ Jesus. Actually, she starts at Christ Jesus. I was saying Jesus Christ, but same idea. The man, Christ Jesus, was not the Lord God Almighty. Yet Christ and the Father are one. Next sentence reads, The deity did not sink under the agonizing torture of Calvary. Yet it is nonetheless true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we've got an interesting situation here. She says, Jesus was not the Lord God Almighty, yet Christ and the Father are one. I think it's pretty obvious that the Lord God Almighty would be the Father. She's saying that Christ, the man, is not the Lord God Almighty or not the Almighty Father. Yet, Christ and the Father are one. Do we have a contradiction? Or an interesting paradox here? Or do we have a consistency? Well, first of all, before we analyze it, in detail, let's back up now. Let's back up. What did Ellen White believe about the deity of Jesus Christ and his relationship with the Father? And this, of course, is the larger framework of the triune nature of God, the Trinity. Well, let me go to an interesting statement. This is some years before. This statement is 1896. Here is what she says, and I think this is a definitive statement about Ellen White's belief of the Son's relationship to the Father. She writes, How thankful we should be that Christ took human nature upon himself and became subject to temptation, even as we are. Though he took humanity upon himself, he was divine. And the next sentence is significant. All that is attributed to the Father himself is attributed to Christ. Again, let me state all that is attributed to the Father himself is attributed to Christ. I don't think that needs any comment, does it? 
all the prerogatives of God the Father, the Lord God Almighty, His deity, His omnipotence, His power, His omniscience, His love, everything. His full divine nature is attributed to Christ. She goes on. His divinity, speaking of Christ, His divinity was clothed with humanity. He was the creator of heaven and earth, and yet while upon earth He became weary as men do and sought rest from the continual pressure of labor. He who made the ocean, who controls the waters of the great deep, who opened the springs and the channels of the earth, felt it necessary to rest at Jacob's well and to ask a drink of water from a strange Samaritan woman. You want to read this for yourself. That's Review and Herald, May 19, 1896. And I should add, you could type that up on the screen. It'll pull it from you. For example, this whole manuscript that I'm addressing here is Manuscript 140, 1903. At the top, you just type in MS 140, 1903. Boom, it'll pop up. The same thing here, Review and Herald, May 19, 1896. You'll get the whole document or type in a phrase or two of it. So anyway, that, that sets forth in the 1890s Ellen White's understanding of Christ's deity. He is fully divine and is equal with the Father. And then another statement she made in 1893, which is most significant. I will come back to this one in future episodes because it is related to the oneness of the Trinity. And by the way, before I read this statement, let, let me just say basic Trinitarianism. Seventhly, we are accused of being anti-Trinitarians or less than Trinitarians. And we've got this anti-Trinitarian movement and they, they believe we're too Trinitarian, that, that the official church is too Trinitarian. And then those outside and the critics and so forth don't believe we're Trinitarian enough. So we're getting hit from both sides. But I, I would assert, and this is something that the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference and the seminary are, are earnest in setting forth the facts of what Adventists really believe with regard to the triune nature of God. Myself, I believe in the triune nature of God. And the core basic idea to the Trinity is the oneness of God and the threeness of God. Those two aspects, dimensions, if you will, they're held in tension, dynamic tension, and it's a mystery we can't explain it. God is one. Scripture is clear on that. The oneness of God, yet there are three persons to the Godhead. And that's probably the best term, the scriptural term, the Godhead. God is one, but there are three persons within the Godhead. And Ellen White's concern, as you're going to see, is to, is to set forth in the midst of that oneness, the threeness of God. And you could add to that that um, there are three persons, they're co-equal, co-eternal. That's scriptural. That's basic Trinitarian 101. All right, and Seventh-day Adventists at this point in time and over the last century have espoused that. Yes, there is a history of semi-Arianism in Adventism. I'm not going to get into all of that now. That'll be an issue that I know we'll address with uh, the Adventist History Podcast and Adventist Pilgrimage with Michael Campbell, Greg Howell. We're going to address more of that history and so forth. And there are several major volumes coming out within the next year, in 2024 and the year after, three volumes that will be dealing with the whole issue of the Trinity in Adventist history, and Ellen White in the Trinity, 
and the biblical nature of the Trinity, and we're Adventists stand, and I can tell you that Adventists believe today in the triune nature of God, and that the three are one, but there are three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. So as you can see now, you probably can see where I'm going with the statement. It doesn't say what critics say it says. And anyway, let me get back to another statement here. This is a significant one, a, a part of the larger framework. This is in 1893, just 10 years prior to this statement of 1903. It seemed that divinity flashed through humanity. As Jesus said, I and my Father are one. The words of Christ were full of deep meaning as he put forth the claim that he and the Father were of one substance, possessing the same attributes. That is the only time in Elohim's writings where she uses this phrase of one substance, the Father and the Son. That's a framework for this statement. The man Christ Jesus was not the Lord God Almighty, yet Christ and the Father are one. The background to that is that this statement, he and the Father were of one substance. Now, the substance, this is where we get into Trinitarian history and all the creeds and so forth. A number of the creeds use that term substance. Adventists in general have, have shied away from that. But Ellen White, in this one and only statement, uses that uh, phrase, substance. Now, that doesn't mean... Um, they're not distinct in persons, but it means in terms of their full divinity, the, the whatever that is. See, the nature of God, the closest to it biblically is the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father and, and so forth. This mutual indwelling, this oneness that goes back to all eternity of, of the triune God. God is one, but God is three persons. This is the mystery. And so Ellen White never repeats that word substance again in this context. Um, but that shows clearly that she saw the oneness of the Father and the Son, that they are equal. In fact, at another place she uses co-equal. So she says they, he and the Father were of one substance, possessing the same attributes. That is an important framework for this statement. She will say the same thing in other words, other phrases. And if you know anything about Adventist history, the fact that she used that statement is quite, quite interesting in light of the, the anti-Trinitarianism in Adventist history. Ellen White was on a trajectory different from her colleagues. You can see that in the earlier writings, and that's why we always need to look at Ellen White, as with any author who's written a, a huge body of writings, we have to look at them in their totality. What, what is, in her terms of her literary corpus, what is the end product? The, the end message in the totality of her writings about various subjects. And that's what we have to do with regard to her interesting trajectory on the Trinity throughout her writings. Anyway, I'm getting off into more detail than I have time to cover here. Here's another statement. From all eternity, Christ was united with the Father. And when he took upon himself human nature, he was still one with God. He is the link that unites God with humanity. That signs of the Times, August 1, 1905. You can find it. Uh, also in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 228. Also, this important statement. Christ was God essentially, and in the highest sense, He was with God from all eternity. God overall, blessed forevermore. The Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity 
a distinct person. That tells us a lot about this statement, the distinction in persons. They're one, but distinct. Notice she says, the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, existed from eternity, a distinct person, yet one with the Father. Notice how she brings together the tension, the oneness of God and the threeness of God. She's not mentioning the Holy Spirit here, but that in, in the totality of her writings, the three divine beings in the Godhead who are one, yet distinct in persons, are all fully God. And she goes on to say, he was the surpassing glory of heaven. That's a review in Herald, April 5, 1906, also selected messages, book one, page 247. And finally, she says this. This is the only other background statement I'm going to make. She says, Christ was not compelled to endure this cruel treatment. The yoke of obligation was not laid upon him to undertake the work of redemption. Voluntarily, he offered himself a willing, spotless sacrifice. He was equal with God, infinite and omnipotent. Again, he was equal with God, infinite and omnipotent. He was above all finite requirements. He was himself the law in character. That is Manuscript 101, 1897. It's published in Manuscript Releases, Volume 12, 395. You can easily find it here at egwhitewritings.org. So there are plenty of other statements, many, many others. But that's enough to give you the framework. So outside of this statement, she's very clear on the full deity of Christ, and the full equality of Christ with the Father. All of the Father's attributes are the Son. In other words, both Christ and the Son are the Lord God Almighty. They're both the Lord God. That is said in numerous ways in other places in Ellen White's understanding. So what in the world is going on here? Why did she have to be so problematic and state it this way? The man, Christ Jesus, was not the Lord God Almighty. Well, this is where she always ties things together in tension. You find this concept in Scripture, you know, truths are two apparently different truths are tied together in a tension. And that's what we find in the, the triune nature of God. There are three, yet one. So let's analyze just this paragraph. There's no one who can explain the mystery of the incarnation, yet we know that he came to this earth and lived as a man among men. She's talking about the humanity of Christ, the the incarnation. The man, Christ Jesus, they, was not the Lord God Almighty. Now, this is in the framework of what scholars call theologians. They distinguish between the imminent trinity and the economic trinity. The imminent trinity is the, the trinity throughout eternity. The economic trinity is the, is the trinity, the triune God in the context of redemption, where the three God, the threefold God came down and each one had a role in the plan of redemption to save humanity. Christ, of course, being the, the point person, being the, 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 the focus, uh, the one who volunteered to come and dwell among us and become human flesh with us and become one with humanity, the beautiful plan of redemption and what Christ has done. So that's that's what's going on here. That's that is the 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 framework here. 
And so she is talking about Christ in his humanity. He was not the same person as the Father. Christ was on earth. The Father was in heaven. You read the Gospels very carefully, and you find that uh, particularly Luke, you know, Luke is, his Gospel is laying the groundwork for part two of his story in the book of Acts. Of course, Christ is the focus in the Gospel, and the Holy Spirit takes on the prominent role in the book of Acts. But Luke gives us hints of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, particularly in the baptism of Christ. And so you see the triune God at work there. And so Ellen White here is simply distinguishing between Jesus as the Son, the man, divinity clothed in humanity with the Father in heaven. Yet, as Jesus so often stated in the Gospel of John, he and the Father are one. And then she makes this interesting statement, the deity did not sink under the agonizing torture of Calvary. Yet it is nonetheless true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And apparently here she is showing the, again, the oneness of them and yet the distinctiveness that's the statement, the deity did not sink under the agonizing torture of Calvary. That's a mystery that we don't understand, uh, just how that worked. But what, she, what I believe that she's saying here is that while they are one, they are distinct. And that's where she cites John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The two are working together here in harmony, yet they are distinct. You have the distinction of God giving his only begotten son, the two, and yet they are working together. But let's back up and look at the larger, more context of this whole document. All right? Let's go back to the beginning. I'm scrolling back to the beginning now. You can do that. And so, as I mentioned earlier, she begins with the rebellion of Lucifer in heaven. The first 16 paragraphs discuss that. Then she comes down to the section, a divine sin bearer. To redeem man from the results of the fall, she walks Lucifer's rebellion all the way through to the fall, uh, temptation in the Garden of Eden. And then she brings it to Christ, the Son of God, volunteered to bear the penalty of transgression. Then she writes, nearly 2,000 years ago, a voice of mysterious import was heard in heaven from the throne of the highest. Lo, I come. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared me. Lo, I come, and the volume of the book is written of me to do thy will. Hebrews 10, 5 and 7. Five and seven. She writes, In these words is announced the purpose that had been hidden from eternal ages. Christ was about to visit our world and become incarnate. And then, interestingly, in the next several paragraphs, she defines who this one is that would come, incarnate. She said, writes in paragraph 18, who is this that thus announced his purpose of becoming incarnate and visiting a guilty world? And through a series of scriptures, she answers that question. First, she says, quote, we ask Isaiah who he is. And he answers, 
Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. We ask John, the beloved disciple, and what does he reply? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and full of grace and truth. That's John 1, 1, and 1, 3, and verse 14. We ask Christ Himself, who art thou? And the answer comes, before Abraham was, I am. I and my Father are one. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That's John 8, 58 and 10, 30 and 5, 21 and 22. Those are clear statements on the full divinity of Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am. The divine prerogatives of the great I am are attributed to Christ. That's clear in the Gospel of John, and Ellen White is doing that here. Who is he? Christ himself says, I am that I am. That's my statement. Let me go back and quote. Then she says, we asked Paul, the chief of the apostles, who is this? And then she cites several important passages by Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godless, godlessness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels and preached in the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. Then she quotes Philippians 2, 5 and 11 of Christ's great condescension and, and uh, coming in humility, and yet he was God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation, took upon himself a form of a servant. You know that wonderful text. And in Colossians 1, 14 and 17, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. Uh, and, and that text, of course, goes on. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So you can see here she's giving a list of verses that identify Christ as God, very God, if we summarize it. And then she goes to Revelation. The revelator, writing to what he saw in vision on the Isle of Patmos, says, And I heard a voice of many angels round about the throne and the living creatures and elders, and a number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a great voice, Worthy is the Lamb that hath been slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing, and every created thing which is in the heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and the sea, and all things that are in them I heard saying, Unto him that sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb be blessing and the honor and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So clearly this is an exaltation of Christ through the Word. So in the very context of this statement, she is exalting Christ as the Scriptures do, as the divine Son of God, to use that phrase, famous, often quoted phrase, God, very God. Then in paragraph 27. She writes, Christ, and this is the paragraph right before the controversial one we're addressing. Christ left his position in the heavenly courts and came to this earth to live a life of human beings. The sacrifice he made in order to show that Satan's charge against God is false, that it is impossible, that it is possible for man to obey the laws of God's kingdom. Here's the next sentence. Equal with the Father honored and adored by the angels, 
In our behalf, Christ humbled himself and came to this earth to live a life of lowliness and poverty, to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yet the stamp of divinity was upon his humanity. He came as a divine teacher to uplift human beings to increase their physical, mental, and spiritual efficiency. So as you can see, the preceding paragraphs to this statement are all exalting the full equality of Christ with the Father. All the prerogatives of the Father are that of the Son. And then comes this statement. Now we read it in its context. There is no one who can explain the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. Yet we know that he came to this earth and lived as a man among men. The man, Christ Jesus, was not the Lord God Almighty, yet Christ and the Father are one. Now, what is going on here is she's not diminishing the divinity of Christ at all. She is simply distinguishing between the Father, the persons of the Father and the Son, yet they're one. So again, she's reflecting that mystery, that tension in Scripture of the triune God. God is one, but God is three. The oneness of God and the threeness of God. You say, well, okay, but the Holy Spirit has not been referenced yet. Where do you get the three? Well, that is coming. Because in fact, later on in this document, I'll show you, she references the three. But the focus here, of course, is on Christ and the Father. So that is the paragraph. Following that paragraph, she goes right back into Satan's assaults on Christ in his life. She writes the next paragraph, In every possible way, Satan sought to prevent Jesus from developing perfect childhood, a faultless manhood, a holy ministry, and an unblemished sacrifice. But he was defeated. He could not lead Jesus into sin. He could not discourage him or drive him from the work he had come to, do, uh, come to this earth to do. From the desert to Calvary, the storm of Satan's wrath beat against him, but the more merciless, uh, mercilessly it fell, the more firmly did the Son of God cling to the hand of his Father and press on in the bloodstained path. So here she's stating that Christ never fell into sin, that Satan was defeated. He could not make Christ sin, that Christ was faultless and sinless. Interestingly, I heard on another YouTube channel that uh, a charge was made, and it was done in a very sensational way that Ellen White calls Jesus a sinner. And the argument was, because meat-eating is a sin, Ellen White said, eating meat is a sin. Well, the argument goes, Jesus ate fish. That was meat. So then Ellen White is saying Jesus is a sinner. And I think most Adventists listen to that and shake their heads and say, no, no, that's, that's not accurate at all. That's, that's not what uh, Ellen White meant. Uh, she's talking about vegetarian, she's talking about meat eating in the 19th century in a context which it was done in a very unhealthy way. And that has nothing to do with Jesus eating fish. And uh, she was, that's the last thing she would do is say that Jesus was a sinner. And this paragraph is one uh, example of many places where she, she asserts the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. So again, that, that is uh, one unfair way that many critics operate and misrepresent Ellen White, an Adventist. 
Unfortunately, that is, that is how it goes. But anyway, that made me think of that uh, statement right there. Let's read on. So she talks about the crucifixion of Christ and at his death, what occurred at his death. Um, it was a death blow to Satan and it paid the ransom. Beautiful paragraph. Paragraph 32 reads, Christ's death on the cross paid the ransom for every human being. And by the way, if he were not God, his death could not have paid the ransom for every human being. She continues, all may overcome because Christ has made an atonement for the sins of the whole world. To all he offers the power of redeeming grace, he forces no one to accept his grace. Man is left to make his own choice. And that's the, the free will, the Arminian background here to this. That's a subject I'll, I've addressed a little bit on earlier episodes, but uh, maybe more in the future. Those who will not receive Christ as their Savior and in his power turn from evil are left to themselves. Christ has died for them in vain. By their sinful lives, they crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Unless they change, they can never wear the crown of life. So Ellen White always brings it down to the practical. She, she brings it down to the level of godliness, God, godly living. That's what she is seeking to implement in the lives of her readers, is, is to imitate Christ, to follow Christ, to understand his sacrifice, and in humility embrace what he's done, receive forgiveness of sins, and follow him as a disciple. So she's not here, uh, there's no intention here to be theological or in a doctrinal way and say something about the triune nature of God. She always has a practical end whenever she addresses this. And she wants us to understand that while he was on this earth, the Son of God was one with the Father in heaven, but he was also distinct. He was also distinct. And, and that makes his sacrifice for us and his oneness with the human race all the more moving when you see it in that context that it was actually God himself, the triune God in Christ, who died for the sins of the world. And yet it was Christ, the second person of the Godhead, who made that specific sacrifice. So it's, it's a, always a practical end. Then she moves to a section on Christ's work. That which distinguished Christ as the great medical missionary, that which gave him the highest authority, was his power to forgive sins. And she describes uh, in a couple of paragraphs, discusses his forgiveness of sins. And then in paragraph 38, she says, Christ exercised his prerogative to forgive sins as in harmony with his divine nature. Again, the whole framework of this, this document is, is asserting, uh, exalting the divine nature of Christ, the deity of Christ. So again, that's where critics who use this statement fail to analyze it in its document context, as well as its larger framework context of Ellen White's literary corpus. And then she goes, she talks about the paralytic, that story of healing. And she says, and this is paragraph 42, in healing the paralytic, Christ gave indisputable evidence of his messiahship. That's his divinity. And there were those who went from the scene of the miracle to search as never before the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Now, after this, she is a short paragraph about Satan understood Christ's power. And then, then we come to paragraph 44. And this my friends, is the key clarifying paragraph that will explain our controversial paragraph above. This is where you want to read this entire document for yourself. See for yourself. Search if these things I'm saying are true or not. Truth test. 
that's a term I'm I'm finding myself using more. Not fact checking, because fact checking in the political world isn't always true facts, is it? We know all about that, but truth checking. You want to truth check what I'm saying here. Here is paragraph 44. While Christ stood forth as the Son of Man, in his own personality, he was at the same time one with the deity. She's repeating the same thing before in different words. Christ stood forth as the Son of Man in his own personality. See, that's what she means above. That clarifies the statement that the, the man Christ Jesus is not the Lord God Almighty. That is, he's not in person the Lord God Almighty. Yet he and the Father are one. Christ is in his own personality. But he was at the same time one with the deity. Notice the rest of the paragraph. He stood within the light surrounding the throne of God, and his words were spoken with power and authority. The Father is in me, and I in him, he declared, John 10, 38. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him, Matthew eleven twenty seven. Whatsoever the Father doeth, and this is all, of course, from the King James that she's using here. Whatever the Father doeth, that also doeth the Son likewise, John 5, 19. And of course, John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. He that has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. And then she concludes the paragraph with this sentence. Christ and God are one. And yet they are distinct personalities. There you have it. There you have it. That statement, that this paragraph clarifies the above paragraph. Then when she says, the man, Christ Jesus, is not the Lord God Almighty, she is not diminishing the deity of Christ at all. She's simply distinguishing between the two persons of the Father and the Son. They are distinct personalities. And then she goes on in this to finish this paragraph. Christ spoke with conscious authority as one possessing in himself power that will enable him to perform his work. She is endeavoring to show us what, while in his incarnate state, as a, as a divine human among humans, he was one with the Almighty Father, full deity, yet he was a man. God very God, human very human, if you will. But they're distinct personalities. And this reflects on eternity past, the, the imminent trinity, the trinity throughout eternity. They are one, but they are three. And they're three in a relational way. And this, this relational issue of the Trinity, that is a focus in Adventism, admittedly. Okay, it's an important one. Ellen White, it's a big focus. When she talks about the Trinity, she talks repeatedly, the three great powers in heaven. Um, she talks about them in a relational way, in their relationship with one another. The love, God is love because the three are so one in substance and nature, and yet they're distinct in persons, and they have this love relationship. And that's why the triune nature of God is so important for us in terms of a doctrine, because it teaches us how to love one another, how to be uh, one with our fellow human beings in a relational type of way. We, the Trinity is such a profound model for human relationships. It, of course, is the ideal that how God can be one and three at the same time, that's the mystery. And, and Adventists have shied away from the creedal statements because they, they give a lot of language and detail that they're not comfortable with. And even now, you've got this in evangelicalism and, and on some of the famous creeds, you've got the 
eternal generation of the Son from the Father, that he was in a perpetual state of generation from the Father, and in fairness to evangelicals that, uh, that believe that, that they're not diminishing his deity at all. They believe his full deity, but he's in this permanent subordinate state of, of generation from the Father. Adventists shy away from that. Uh, we're not comfortable with that. In my mind, while I know that those who, who say that believe in the full deity of Christ, the, still the idea that he's, he was an eternal generation is, is a subtle form of subordination. And surprisingly, uh, Adventists do not accept, Adventist theologians today and Ellen White do not accept any subordination of the Son to the Father, with the exception, of course, while he was on this earth as the Son of God. He, he yielded to his Father, but in his true nature as Scripture and Ellen White have stated here, he was still one with the Father. At any rate, that's a subject I'm going to get into in some other discussions and other venues about the nature of the Trinity and the, the uh, creeds and, and that type of thing. Uh, I'm getting off into that, saying too much on that now because I, I want to keep you focused uh, here, and so forgive me if I keep adding all this other detail, but I want to bring it to a conclusion here. I'm going to go down several paragraphs where she continues to talk about Christ's work of redemption for us. Beautiful statements. Here is where she brings the Trinity together, the three. Sure enough, and I found this, by the way, to be very consistent with Ellen White. This is paragraph 59. She's making it practical. Again, her whole focus is not just theology. Her focus is to make it practical for daily, everyday Christian living. When we break away from the tyranny of self, this is paragraph 59, when we break away from the tyranny of self, we place ourselves under the guidance of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes the things of God and shows them to us, leading us into all truth. Did you hear what happened there? In that one sentence, one breathtaking stroke, she brings all three members of the triune God, together. They are working together in the plan of redemption. We place ourselves under the guidance of Christ, and the Holy Spirit takes the things of God and shows them to us, and leading us into all truth. The things of God, you have Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God together. Kind of a tridactic uh, element here. You find that in Scripture, especially the, in the writings of Paul, the triune nature of God is embedded in many texts. Uh, that is something I'll discuss in another venue when I'm discussing Scripture in the Trinity. Um, but Ellen White, I'm finding, does the same thing. She mirrors that idea of, of the triadactic uh, nature of, of the Trinity, the three. She just effortlessly brings them together in their work uh, for the salvation of humanity. So, friends, that, that's, that's pretty much this document. Uh, I encourage you to look up Manuscript 140, 1903 here in, in at egwhitewritings.org. You can see for yourself the document context is a shout to the divinity of Christ. And when she says in that statement, the man Jesus Christ is not the Lord God Almighty, yet Christ and the Father are one, she's distinguishing between the persons, the two personalities. They work together. That's what she's doing. She's not diminishing the deity of Christ at all. That, that's, I believe, a fair analysis. That's the context. It's, it's unfair to, 
to read something into this statement without analyzing the larger framework. The idea that she's saying Christ is not, in essence, God Almighty, that doesn't fit with the larger framework of Ellen White, and that doesn't fit with the context of this statement, this paragraph in the whole document. So read it in its entirety, friends. Let's not be deceived by various interpretations and even, again, test what I'm, truth test what I'm telling you. Check it out for yourself. Check it out for yourself. Now, as I wrap this up, um, been going longer than usual here, but as you can see, I felt it important to do this analysis. I'm just pulling up on a screen here. The numerous places beginning in the 1900s, she began to speak more and more about the triune God and the three persons of the Godhead. And by the way, let me tell you that the anti-Trinitarians within Adventism, non-Trinitarians as well, they're starting to distinguish themselves in different groups. They will not like what I'm telling you here. And if they hear it, they'll go after it. Um, again, the three volumes I mentioned that are forthcoming are addressing this anti-Trinitarianism within the context of Adventism now, because it is, it is uh, I hear it all the time. People ask me questions. They're confused about it. Um, and the irony of it is, all of this is, is, uh, is to, to go against that trend. We don't want to go back to our pioneers. The semi-Arianism, uh, the Holy Spirit was an influence, not a person, and Jesus was derived from the Father, begotten from the Father, but not always there with the Father, and more of a Benetarianism. That is just not where the Adventist church stands today. And I would ask critics to be honest and listen to what Adventist theologians, what Adventist beliefs are saying today, and look at the whole trajectory of things and where we have gone today. And uh, hopefully this statement will bring a bit of clarity to that, or at least my analysis of it. But at any rate, here is... Uh, several statements that she made in 1903, the same year of the statement uh, that we've just analyzed. She said this in Signs of the Times, March 11, 1903. Those who submit to the solemn rite of baptism pledge themselves to devote their lives to God's service and the three great powers of heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit pledge themselves to cooperate with them to work in and through them. Now that fits with this statement here that I just read to you in our, our document here, Manuscript 140, 1903, where she describes that uh, the three, we place ourselves under the guidance of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes the things of God and shows them to us. The, the three are pledging themselves to work with us in salvation. So, Another place, she says, they are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thus, they are united with the three great powers of heaven. In 1904, she also said, keep yourselves where the three great powers of heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, can be your efficiency. Now, some critics will say, see, three great powers, the heavenly trio. There's a, there's a smack of tritheism there. Tritheism is the, is the belief uh, that there are three separate gods, all right? And you, if, if we emphasize the relational trinity too much, and that has happened in some cases in Adventist, you can sound like tritheism. But I think if you read Ellen White holistically and listen to Adventism today, uh, we, we don't do that. I've actually was accused of that 
in a, a clip that was taken from a statement I made when I was actually attempting to refute anti-Trinitarians. And I was interpreted as if I were saying a bit of tritheism, which is just not the case when the statement is taken in its context. But I'm going to address that on another venue on the Adventist Defense League and probably with my colleagues and, uh, at Adventist Pilgrimage. Say more about that at that in those venues. But here's what's interesting. I'm just moving to the next page here of this document. Here is, this is Manuscript 45, May 14, 1904, just a year later here. She writes, Christ has given you a work to do. His commission is to go throughout the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Before the disciples shall compass the threshold, there is to be an imprint of the sacred name, baptizing the believers in the name of the threefold power. So you have the oneness and the threeness here in tension. The name of the threefold powers in the heavenly world, the human mind is impressed in this ceremony, the beginning of the Christian life. It means very much. The work of salvation is not a small matter, but so vast that the highest authorities, that's God himself, are taken hold of by the expressed faith of the human agency. And the next sentence is important. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the eternal Godhead, is involved in the action required to make assurance to the human agent to unite all heaven and to contribute to the exercise of human faculties to reach and embrace the fullness of the threefold powers to unite in the great work appointed, confederating the heavenly powers with the human that man may become through heavenly efficiency, partakers of the divine nature and workers together with Christ. Again, that's Manuscript 45, May 14, 1904, page 9 and 10. It's also in the compilation, The Upward Look, page 148. So here she uses the term Godhead. And by the way, she would start using years in, in the 1900s and onwards toward the end of her life. More and more, she'd use that term, the Godhead, in light of the heavenly three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the eternal Godhead. She uses the singular, is involved. So again, you see here the oneness of God held in tension with the threeness of God. That's basic, fundamental Trinitarianism. Ellen White taught it and believed it. It's a larger framework for this statement. So hopefully that will clarify the nature of this statement. The man, Christ Jesus, is not the Lord God Almighty, yet the Son and the Father are one. They are one. They're distinguished in persons, but they're one in nature and one in substance, to use the term the creedal term that Ellen White herself used. So it's important, friends, on these things. Ultimately, this statement, it, it has a practical effect. She ends it with the, the last paragraph, paragraph 61. This is back in manuscript 140, 1903. It reads, shall we not receive the remedy that Christ holds out to us, the remedy that will cleanse the soul from sin? It is a shame to commit sin. The promise is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have the forgiving, forgiveness. Uh, here's a beautiful blend of justification, sanctification. Christ forgives us, yet he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And she goes on to say, let us now confess our sins and put them away, that we may be vessels unto honor, that at last we may meet the sin bearer with joy and not with grief. So it all has a practical end. 
to be a disciple of Christ, to follow Him, to experience the sanctification of the Spirit, but also to rest in the assurance and the forgiveness of Christ's completed work for us on the cross. And it is at the cross where He ultimately defeated Satan in His perfect life and in His death on the cross. That's the major message here. The Trinitarian God, the triune God, is working in our behalf to save the human race, to save you and me. All right, friends, I hope that's helpful. That is a taste of what is to come in future episodes next year. Until next time, God bless. 